0: Hello, and welcome to the OCSHP Podcast, a venture of the Orange County Society of Health Systems Pharmacists. This is our third episode of the OCSHP Podcast, and the title of this episode is Life Skills for Pharmacists. Things I Wish I Learned Before Graduating from Pharmacy School. My name is Herman Johannesmeyer, I'm the current president of OCSHP, and I'm also an assistant professor at the Marshall B. Ketchum University College of Pharmacy, and I have my clinical practice site at Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. And I'll be co modering this episode with Kevan Musavi. Hello, happy to be here. And the purpose of the OCSHP podcast is to give helpful insight to pharmacists, pharmacy students, pharmacy technicians about clinical topics. But in addition to that, we do want to give pharmacists and pharmacy students some insight on things outside of the clinical topics of pharmacy. And for today's episode, PharmD curricula and residency programs typically focus on making good pharmacists, focusing on basic and clinical sciences during those didactic and experiential years. But those subjects don't always necessarily translate to to success in a society, you know, things that are, are necessary to work in society. I was talking to Kayvon earlier today that once upon a time when I was a pharmacy student, if I turned the key on my car and it didn't start, I just thought, oh, well, this is my life now. I guess I'm living without a car. So that just emphasizes that there are things we need to do in life that don't always necessarily get taught within a pharmacy curriculum. And that's mostly what we're going to focus on today. So looking at a non Pharmacy practice related knowledge. And we do have a few panelists to help us out uh, talking about some of these finer points. Uh, So let's go ahead and start off by meeting Josh Garcia.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, Herman, Kayvon, thank you for having me. Honored to be here for the podcast. So my name is Josh Garcia. I'm also an assistant professor at Marshall B. Ketchum University College of Pharmacy. My practice site is also with Herman over at Mission Hospital and Mission Viejo. I graduated from Philadelphia College of Pharmacy back in 2015 and then did two years of residency at UCSF. So I've been a pharmacist for about five years and a grown-up pharmacist, in my own words, for about three years now. And yeah, I'm so happy to be here for this podcast, especially because like you said, Herman, it's just a lot of life skills that we're still learning. So I'm also going to be taking notes as we're talking today too. So thanks.
0: Great. Thank you. And then let's go to Tamara.
2: Hi everyone, Um, my name is Tamara Lee. I'm a transitions of care clinical pharmacy specialist at Loma Linda University Medical Center. Thank you so much for having me on here today. It's my first podcast, so I'm pretty excited. I currently work at Loma Linda University Medical Center, which is where I met Kayvon. I completed my PGA1 residency there in 2016 to 2017. And prior to that, I obtained my PharmD from uh, UC San Francisco.
0: Great, thank you very much. And then let's go to Jocelyn.
3: Hi, thanks for having me on here. My name is Jocelyn Yamzon. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Marshall B. Ketchum University College of Pharmacy. So my colleagues here, Josh, Herman, and Kayvon, thank you for having me on. I did my pharmacy school at USC, graduated in 2004, did a community residency there, and then went on to be faculty at Loma Linda University for more than 10 years before coming to Ketchum University. And I'm glad to be on here. I have a long history of learning um, on the ropes, you know? And so uh, hopefully I have some insight so you don't have to learn like I did.
0: Great, thanks very much. So I guess our first question for you all is, what non-clinical subjects do you wish you knew more about before graduating from pharmacy school?
1: I think one topic that I wish that I knew more of before graduating pharmacy school was definitely finances. And in fact, if I could take it back, I wish I knew more about finances before I started pharmacy school as well. A little bit about me, I went to a private pharmacy school, and it was actually a two plus four program, so undergrad plus pharmacy school combined. And you know, at, at the age of 18, I had no idea what a loan was. I had no idea what interest was. I had no idea about anything about finances. But yet they let me take out over $300,000 of, of money without really understanding how to, how to pay it all back. You know, I think that for myself, when I went into pharmacy school, I, I kind of knew, yeah, I got to take on some debt, but I'll make a lot of money on the back end. So I'll I'll be fine regardless. But I think that what I didn't quite understand at that point was really what does $300,000 of student loans look like and how does that really affect our, you know, our, our ability to save, what we can do uh, moving forward. So I think for myself, I wish I just, you know, I started to learn stuff after I graduated mostly through trial and error and i wouldn't say that i'm an expert now but i I am a little bit more versed but i I think you know general personal finances and student loans is something that i wish that i knew a little bit more of throughout pharmacy school and maybe like i wish that we had a course on it while i was in there
3: yeah
4: josh so yeah i definitely agree that's like a huge impact like on our our quality of life like kind of post uh post-graduation post-residency so, could you just kind of like just briefly break down you know what a student loan is, Maybe how it's different than just someone just gifting you three hundred thousand dollars? I mean, what's what's the difference? I mean, why
1: is a loan different than you know your grandparents just handing you out that free money? Yeah, right. right. And so some some of you who are listening to the podcast may be more familiar with loans. Some of you might. But in case you haven't or in case you're not quite as familiar with loans, Um, So a a loan is essentially borrowed money. And for student loans, most of it comes from the government, but they can come from other entities such as banks or private lenders. But the idea of a loan is that I don't have money right now. So I'm going to ask this bank or the government to give me some money. But that being said, that money doesn't come for free. Kind of like in Kayvon's example, if I got that money from my grandparents, they would give it to me without anything. I wouldn't have to pay them back. They just love me like that. Unfortunately, when we take out loans, not only do we have to pay that money back, but there's also a cost transaction for borrowing that money, and that's that's what's known as interest. And so for student loans, when we take out loans for our monies on our semesters, there is interest that is accrued on those loans. And so let's say I, over the course of four years, take out $300,000 of student loans to pay for my pharmacy school, what I owe back to the government is not $300,000, but really of that, that has kind of been growing over a a certain amount of years. And so depending on your situations, depending on what types of loans you have, that $300,000 might be more. It might be close to 400,000 or 500,000. And so the one, I think that's something that I didn't quite realize was kind of that idea of accumulating interest and and what interest meant on the back end. 300,000 at the beginning does not necessarily mean 300,000 at the end.
4: Yeah. So, Josh, just just uh, another question related to loans, because that's again a, a very important topic for us. So, how are you choosing to to pay these back? Like, um, are you doing like an income base? You know, a fixed kind of ten year something. You know, in between a, a longer period. Like, how are you? How are you going about paying
1: back that that money that you have to pay back? Right. And I'll I'll try not to take too long, because I could literally talk about this for hours, because I just enjoy it so much but to give, but so I'll tell you my strategy, but it also my strategy for paying back loans or my particular plan is, to, is contingent because it, it depends on what, or it depended on what type of loans I took out. And so for my pharmacy school, I had a mix of loans. So I had a mix of both federal loans and private loans. And so for our listeners who are, who are unfamiliar, federal loans are kind of your subsidized or unsubsidized loans given, given to you by the government. Private loans are given by separate companies like banks, or private companies like Earnest or SoFi. Those two different types of loans have different rules on whether you pay them back or not. There's many different rules, but to to kind of give a broad overview, the federal government generally tends to have higher interest rates, but there's a lot of protections that are given. So those protections that are given by the federal government, we can see now in COVID. So right now under the CARES Act, they actually suspended all payments interest-free for all federal student loans. So if you had federal student loans, you didn't have you, we haven't had to had make any payments on those for the last nine months now. Whereas private loans through banks or SoFi or whatnot generally have lower interest rates, but those protections are not there. So since my loans are split about 50-50, half federal, half private, my federal loans, for instance, in COVID, I haven't had to pay for the last nine months, but I've had to make payments on my private loans. Now, because of that, private loans, generally, there's there's kind of no way around that. If you have private loans, you kind of have to pay it back. So for my private loans, I've been making payments on those. I've actually refinanced those private loans, which we can go into a little bit more what refinanced means, but I've refinanced those private loans multiple times to get a pretty low interest rate. And I'm planning, I should have about eight more years of payments for the private loans. And then for the federal loans, the federal loans that I have, because we work at Marshall B. Ketchum University, and it is a non-for-profit university, I actually qualify for the public service loan forgiveness on that end. So for that particular pathway for the federal loans, I'm making an income-based payment every month. And then after 10 years of service to Marshall B. Ketchum University or a public institution, the remainder of that debt is actually forgiven. And so I'm using two different strategies because I have two different types of loans.
4: So, so Josh, so about about like how like if you're comfortable with disclosing this information, about how much are you currently paying like per
1: month towards your paying back your loans? Yeah, yeah, I have no problem disclosing how much I pay on my loans. <laughs> so, in terms of my federal loans, I have just to give you guys kind of rough numbers. I have about ninety thousand, probably a little less now because I've refinanced, but about ninety thousand in private loans on a three point five one percent interest rate. Which means I pay about nine hundred ninety-nine dollars, or roughly about a thousand dollars a month, on the private loans for that to be finished in eight years. And for the federal loans, because it's income-based, right now based on my income, I pay eight hundred and fifty-five dollars a month. So generally, about eighteen hundred to nineteen hundred a month. Now, to to give a little bit more insight, income-based is really what 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 the name implies, right? Based on my income, based on what my taxes come out to be on my adjusted gross income or my AGI, that's how the government determines, oh, this is this is the 10% of your income that you are going to owe for this year. Now, one strategy that I've, I've utilized is contributing to things, which we'll probably talk about later, but highly contributing to my 401k retirement plan to lower what it looks like on the front end that I make. And then on therefore during tax season, it actually will reduce the amount of federal loans on my end. For the public student, public service loan forgiveness. Since all of the remainder of the debt will be wiped away at the end of ten years, the name of the game for those is to try to minimize payments as much as possible. But around eighteen to nineteen hundred a month.
4: Yeah, and Tamar, just wondering for you. So, do you have any? Like, are you currently paying back any student loans?
2: Currently, during the pandemic, no, I'm not paying off my student loans because they're on hold right now. And like Josh, I am participating in the public service loan forgiveness program because Loma Linda University does qualify as a nonprofit. So prior to the pandemic, I was making monthly payments and my monthly payments were about eight hundred fifty dollars per month. I only have federal loans. I don't have any private loans. And um, because I was able to go to school in-state public schools for both college and for pharmacy school, I don't owe that much, but it's still a significant amount.
4: Yeah. And then Jocelyn, so I know that you also went to a a private school for pharmacy school. So like what was your, your loan repayment plan like?
3: Yeah, so I I did have quite a significant amount of loans to repay going to a private school. One of the things that I did was I actually consolidated. So once I did graduate, I had both undergrad as well as pharmacy school loans to pay off. And so I consolidated, which at that time was fantastic because the the loan that I had was 1.625%, which you can't really get anymore. So thankfully, and then I honestly have just finished paying off my entire loans um, as of like a few weeks ago so that's oh, pretty wow.
4: congratulations yeah it's huge
3: <laughs> but you know one of the things I think as much as you like to to have a plan knowing again that plans don't always work out and life happens and so you know I would be on a plan and then things happen you know kids, family whatever and so you would have to shift payments here and there depending on on what happens but you know have definitely having a plan can be very very helpful and and you know I, I work with my husband and so now that my loans are repaid then now we're shifting to his loans and so that's how it works in my house
4: yeah my wife and i are in the same boat right now so like fortunately like i was able to pay mine off a little bit before 10 years just maybe like seven or so years like after graduation but yeah we're still working on my wife's uh, as well but yeah as, as all of you have highlighted, it's a it's a pretty big financial burden. I mean, having to pay a thousand to two thousand dollars or more like per month. I mean, that's that can make it really difficult to buy things. You know, like a home, a car, to go on vacation, stuff for for your kids, your family, and and so on. So um, for those of you that are still you know in school and still have the choice to you know take out more or less loan money highly recommend you look into how to take out less money and also how to, if you need to, trying to find like interest rates that are as low as possible. So um, I I guess that kind of brings us to like the next question for each of you. So how did you learn more about how to pay your loans back? I mean, was it just you were thrown into it as soon as you graduated and you just had to figure it out like on the fly? Were there any like individuals, any references? Like how, how did you learn about loans and how like the best way to repay them?
1: So with, with myself, um, I remember very vividly, you know, matching to UCSF, being extremely happy, and then the next few weeks was figuring out housing, got housing, was extremely happy, which in San Francisco is, and Tamra shaking her head, she knows how crazy that is. So I was super happy. And then I started to get calls from my mom and, and mail saying that my loans were due, because this is at the end of my P4 year. And again the thing that i had pushed off for for years is now coming to fruition so i had to i remember calling our school's financial aid office to kind of get all of the information that i that i needed trying to figure out how many how much i owed for this semester how to how to pay it back i really had no resources the student uh, the government student aid has a kind of outro or outgoing um, sort of tutorial that that's mandated for students to be able to take. But I remember clicking through that and still not really understanding how my loans were, who I owed to. I remember making payments on my federal loans, signing up for income-based repayments under the repay program. And then about a month later, getting a bill from Chase Bank, who was my private loans. I didn't even realize I had private loans. And so on top of starting residency, I had all of these financial things that just kind of kept piling up. And I'm like, I thought that I I thought I caught all the loans. Just I didn't even know how much I had. And so I, I think that for myself, I started to to go on to different websites. Eventually, I found some that I, I found were very reliable. so i I, I found uh, your financial pharmacist who uh, that uh, is the person who um, authored seven figure pharmacists. So he's a pharmacist that kind of delved into and made a niche out of finances and student loans. So I started to understand what the differences were, what what loans were. I, I found another website, the studentloanplanner.com. Those guys specialize in high debt type of, uh, high debt type of incomes or high debt type of professions such as pharmacists, doctors, dentists. And and to be honest, I think that they're probably one of the most knowledgeable on student debt that I've, I've ever seen. So resources like that. I got at one point there was through the uh, CSHP chapter at San Francisco, they had a financial advisor come and talk to us, which was very helpful in educating me but i think the thing that i also learned from that was that not all financial advisors are fiduciaries for our listeners who don't know what a fiduciary is is a fiduciary is a financial advisor that is obligated to act in your best interests so that being said just because someone is a financial advisor doesn't necessarily mean that they have your best interests at art i through recommendations through them i ended up paying or not paying off some loans investing in many things that I probably shouldn't have been invested in. So uh, for myself, it's been a lot of trial and error. And I think for myself, I've been lucky that a lot of the stuff that I've learned, I've just enjoyed learning, but it's it's a constant process. I, I'm I'm always learning from different resources.
2: So for me, before I started my fourth year rotations, I remember that our UCSF financial aid services office actually held like a lunchtime presentation to let us know what our options were for repaying our loans. Um, I think it was just like a one hour presentation. I did attend it. I did get the paperwork from it. But I think by the time my fourth year actually ended, I had already forgotten a lot of it. So I I did go back to my school's financial aid aid website to look at the information they had for us. And um, fortunately, my sister is actually a pharmacist at Loma Linda University Medical Center as well, so I had her as a resource. I was asking her what her plan was for repayment, and she was the one who told me about that she was doing the public service loan forgiveness program, so she helped me get that set up.
3: My experience is, is very similar. It's it's learning as you go. You know, I think some of your uh, comments earlier, Kayvon, are very important. Um, if you are thinking about taking out a loan, really looking at the loan and how much you really need right so if you are living at home and you don't need that full amount don't take it right because you're paying the interest on top of that and so really trying to look at that before you take out your loans i had some very good resources as well you know somebody did also have me look at a a financial advisor but I'm lucky, lucky that I have a financial advisor in my, in my dad. My dad is a CPA. And so he very much helped me out along the lines of what, what I should and should not be doing. But asking those questions, I think that's what I really would like to tell, especially students is, is ask, right? And if you don't ask, then you'll never know. And, and you'll just be signing on the dotted line blindly. So So definitely ask.
1: I just wanted to piggyback off of something that Jocelyn said, and, and that you've said before, Kayvon. Like really thinking about how much you need. I've I, I've I've done a presentation before talking about like hypothetically if you used your loan money to to like just eat while in pharmacy school, right? And I said like let's say you get in and out twice a week while you're in pharmacy school, which you know doesn't see and like in and out burger like estimated at like five dollars, so like ten bucks a week. But you use your loan money, like if you do the calculation, it actually. Cl- Costs you close to like $1,000 in interest just to use your loan money on burgers. So that being said, I was also a student that used my loan money for books, for rent, for things. Not everyone has the ability to avoid that, but where you can, you know, really try to avoid taking out more than you need because spending that on the back end is going to cost you a ton.
4: Yeah, this is, a, this is a huge topic. I mean, honestly, I think we could spend like, you know, three, four hours just going like into the details on loans because, again, the earth are huge for our profession and, I mean, other health professions as well. But Tamara, were there any other um, like subjects you wish you knew more about before graduating?
2: Yeah, so I, um, you know, recently I've been realizing that I I really wish I knew what to do with my savings and also how to invest. With my current situation, I, I currently live at home with my parents. So I do not pay rent. I do not have a mortgage. I do not have kids. I'm single. So a large portion of my income just goes straight into savings. So my money just has kind of been sitting there. You know, I kind of wish I knew to put my money in a high yield savings account. You know, earlier on, um, I do remember Kayvon telling me about Ally high yield savings account, like on my last day of rotation with him in the emergency room, but I just never really acted on that until maybe about a year ago. So, you know, what to do with my savings. And then with investing, I have no idea how to invest my money. I have a cousin who is an anesthesiologist. He's really been trying to get me into investing recently. And he just gave me some books for my birthday about how to invest. So I have all the books on my Kindle, but I haven't started reading them yet just because The subject matter, I just don't find it to be very interesting. um, But I know it's very important, and my my cousin is saying that you know you really want to try to build your wealth earlier on, so that you don't have to work so hard for the rest of your life to provide for your family.
4: Yeah, that's a great topic to to bring up. And and Tamara, I think you hit it like on the head when you said um, it's not fun to read about these things or learn about them. Like it absolutely is not. I mean, it's very dry, and a lot of it is. I mean, that's what it is. Like, it's dry. It's just not fun to learn about these things. But they're they're huge later on. I mean, I know a lot of us are still fairly young. I mean, we're not even close to, to retirement. But does anyone just want to kind of like jump in? I'm not sure if like Josh or Jocelyn, you could jump in on this. But what is what's compound interest? And like, how can that work in your favor? Because I kind of speak to what Tamara was talking about with like, if you invest earlier, it actually works out a lot better later, you know, when you're closer to like that retirement age.
1: Yeah, so I um, so I actually do find it fun to read about interest and read about investing because I think that from a numbers perspective, it just blows my mind. And so when when you talk about investing I and mean, kind of like Tamara mentioned before, like taking your money and instead of like just letting it sit there, like invest it. What does that mean? So Kayvon mentioned the idea of compound interest. And so the way that I like to illustrate it is that, you know, well, while investing into the stock market, on average the stock market will yield an an annual growth of 6% and that varies depending on whatever but but in general that's the number that people use. And so if you were to take $100 and invest that over the course of the year it'll grow by 6%, right? So then that 6 that 6% of 100 is $6. Now you leave that in there and now uh, it grows another 6% but instead of growing at $6 you're growing on of the 106. And so I'm not smart enough to be able to do that math of 6% of 106 dollars in my head. But as you continue to leave your money in there, or you continue to add money, um, and it grows at this 6% a year, in general, what ends up happening is more of an exponential curve instead of a, a linear curve, where your money is just kind of growing incrementally, the money ends up Kind of that's what they mean by working on its own. The the growth that's happening is built on the growth from before. And so when we talk about investing, you know, if you, there's, there's a number of calculators like investment calculators, like if you put in this much money, how much will it be at retirement? And it is, it is staggering to see what happens when you start at like 25 or 30, just even putting a little bit in that's going to be invested in until you're 65, when you retire, how much the, of a difference that makes. For myself, you know, my, my parents are immigrants, they didn't understand the concept of investing. And right now my mom is getting close to retirement age, but she has to put so much extra money into her retirement account because there just isn't that time for the money to grow at 6% every year. She doesn't have as many years left. So, so right now, if you are a pharmacy student or a new grad, seeing the amount of time that you have, just time is your best friend to be able to have that rough 6% continue to add on every year for the next 25 to 30 years, uh, the, it, it it makes a, a world of a difference afterwards. So how do you, so what do you do with that
4: money? Like how, where does it, where does it go? So let's say I have, you know, $10,000 to, you know, invest, put it into something that's gonna grow at like that exponential rate. Where do I put that money? Like, do I just leave it in, you know, my bank account or like where, what, what do I do with it? Like, how do I, where do I send it?
3: I guess that's a million dollar question, right? <laughs> And and hopefully, you know, one of the things that I wish I knew was looking at things like four hundred one k's when you're looking at jobs and and all of the other benefits that come along with jobs um, as you're looking. And so, uh, retirement accounts, stock market, obviously, if that's something that you wanted to to, to do, um, but then there's risks and benefits for those as well. So you you kind of have to figure out where you're you're able to allocate the money, and you might want to do it over across uh, a number of different things so that, again, your risks are mitigated t- to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, and to to jump off of that, Jocelyn kind of mentioned 401ks and retirement plans, and I think that especially not most of our pharmacy students that are listening to this probably won't be thinking about 401ks, but if you're a new grad, that's definitely something that you can do, and so in general, like, like Kayvon was saying, like, where do I put this money most of your employers, especially if you're a pharmacist, will have a 401k plan, which is a retirement plan, which what they'll, they'll say is that they're going to be able to allow you to take a portion of your paycheck and put it into this retirement fund. Now, that retirement fund isn't just a, a kind of bank account where your money sits. That 401k retirement plan are series of um, stocks and investments that will grow, again, at that rough 6%. The great thing about the 401ks is that not only are is it being taken out of your paycheck, so you don't feel the pain of having to pay it like a debt, but the other potential benefit is that it's taken out pre-tax. And I know that we'll probably talk about this later, but one thing that happens when you become a pharmacist and you make a pharmacist salary is you get pharmacist taxes. And the pharmacist taxes are very, very difficult because they tend to be high, especially here in California. But a 401k That money comes out before you are taxed and so in fact the money that you are putting away is actually higher now that being said you will get it taken out on on the back end when you do retire Uh, but to be able to to have a vehicle like that is is very useful other places that you can invest in like jocelyn said are individual stocks but individual stocks tend to be pretty risky because if you invest in tesla and they're doing amazing then your money grows very very high but if they come out with a, a truck that everyone thinks is kind of, you know, coming out of a sci-fi movie, then your money goes down exponentially, too. So there's, there's many different theories, uh, many different people who, who, who invest in different things and different portfolios. But in general, if you are to invest in the U.S. stock market, the U.S. economy, which is generally what is known as the S&P 500, Investments into that via things like Betterment or Robinhood, there's many, many different apps nowadays, um, but investments into the general U.S. stock market generally tend to get that that, that steady growth over a long period of time.
4: Yeah. So, Josh, I think you highlighted like some of the major reasons why you really want to, and Jocelyn as well, why you want to look into putting money into these retirement accounts. Again, 401Ks, 403Bs. Um, So again, it could reduce your taxable income. You're generally going to get a much better return on your investment compared to just letting it sit in a bank and, you know, grow at 0.05% interest. And again, it's helping you to have more money when you get closer to that retirement age, because that's generally when you're going to be pulling out this money. I can't remember if any of you mentioned this, but some employers will also uh, match some of the money that you've invested, like a a certain percentage within your, your retirement accounts. Like, for example, they might say well match three percent five percent seven percent nine percent so that's also like kind of another way to basically um, kind of add to that money that you're investing is basically at least invest up to amount where you will get some of that money matched so basically it's like your employer is giving you extra money on top of your money and again you're generally going to get much more with this this money that you're investing over time versus just again having it sit underneath a mattress okay so this is, again this is another huge topic that i think we could spend you know hours and hours on but um definitely for, especially you new grads and your soon-to-be graduates, look into kind of saving and investments for retirement, you know, 401ks, 403bs, looking at different types of plans like that. That's huge for you as well. Because again, you can turn, you know, a reasonable amount of money into like a lot of money if you invest it wisely. So I think that's definitely something that you guys have to, to look into. So kind of saying like what we what we did like with the, the previous topic on loan repayments. So, how how did you go about learning about, you know, retirement accounts, investments? Where, what were your references? What were your resources that that each of you used? Tamara, I know you said that you have some books that are still on your um, on your on your desk, but are
1: there any others that any of you have used? At, at least for me, I just uh, I started to have a longer commute down to Mission Hospital when I started my practice site, so I got into a lot of podcasts myself. Just financial podcast because apparently i like it enough that it doesn't put me to sleep on the road so some of the podcasts i ended up listening to were uh listen money matters the student loan planner podcast like i mentioned before they actually do talk about a lot of other things including investing the your financial pharmacist podcast so the tim albrecht who wrote the book also has a podcast which he continues to have and then a few other things which which kind of have have been able to give me multiple resources that have kind of put in the or solidified the strength of the recommendation to invest. Our university here also does have an advisor from Lincoln Financial who manages our retirement accounts that does educational sessions on retirement, investing and whatnot. So I would say that when you do get employed with a pharmacy or a hospital, generally the HR department will set up something like that, because I think that they're understanding how important it is for pharmacists and their employees to start investing. So inquire to your HR as well to see if they have any any talks or financial planners that are going to be speaking if, if you don't have those other resources at hand.
4: Yeah. So Tamara, you uh, you also mentioned, uh, well, you, you mentioned savings. Just curious, do you have any, uh, like an emergency fund or very like, you know, some money that you're just like kind of setting aside in case, you know, something catastrophic just happens out of nowhere?
2: So I I don't have an emergency fund. I know there's technically a difference between emergency and savings. I just have like a big savings account. So I guess you can say any money I would need for an emergency is in that savings. So I don't differentiate between the two, but, but I know there is a difference. So savings, it's you're saving up money for a planned purchase but an emergency fund is like something completely unexpected like losing a job like a a death some damage happens to your car your house and you need to get that repaired um so yeah i just have like a, a lump sum of money basically and you know i think this past year 2020 you know during that year it became you know more apparent than ever that it's so important to have you know an emergency fund and and savings because Earlier on in the pandemic, when our hospital did not get that initial surge that we were expecting, um, our census was actually super, super low, and elective surgeries were canceled, and I was actually asked to budget or furlough one day per week. So I was only working eight day eight days per pay period, and um, for those budget days, we were given the option to use paid leave, or if we didn't have paid leave, then we would just have to, you know, not get paid for those days I wasn't stressed out about that in fact I was happy about not having to go to work because at that time you know there was just so much that was unknown I had a lot of anxiety going into work so I was completely fine not working and not getting paid and you know I have enough savings that I think I if something were to happen I I would be fine and I would be able to go you know a while with without a job
1: yeah, I think um, emergency funds are, you know, kind of when when you become a pharmacist, definitely one of the first things that you should be doing, because life comes at you in ways that you don't anticipate, right? Like Tamara said, no one anticipated COVID-19. Even pharmacists had their their hours cut and some let go in some places. So it's always good to have. Everyone has a different comfort level with emergency funds, because really an emergency fund should give you confidence that, like Tamara said, if you weren't able to make that same income, could could you continue to sustain? So for myself personally, I have I have three to six months, and, and a lot of people generally like to have three to six months of expenses or income set aside as cash. Um, this This money shouldn't be invested because if the stock market crashes, then your money goes with it. So it should be it should be in it, it, well, by cash meaning like in a in a checking or savings account. Um, so readily available and and not able to be changed by market fluctuations. and And generally, I don't touch that emergency fund unless I meet all three criteria for needing it. Um, so for myself, the, if if I need to tap into my emergency fund, my the the thing that I need the money for must one be urgent. so I need the money now. I, I can't like just put it on a credit card and then come back to it later in the month. It has to be um, uh, su- substantial. So not something that I can just pay with on hand. And then the third one is necessary. Being necessary doesn't mean that, you know, I-, I saw the PS5 and like, I absolutely need to get it. But I mean, that is true, but I don't I don't actually need it. But it, it might be something like, you know, my car is completely shot and I-, I don't know how to fix the radiator and I need to be able to drive to be able to get to work and practice site. So those three things, if it meets all of those criteria, then I will tap into my emergency fund. Um, but other than that, I, I leave it for that rainy day. But that's just me.
3: Yeah, I would I would definitely agree that I think an emergency fund is necessary. Um, as Tamara mentioned, um, COVID definitely shown a, a big light on that this year. But, you know, also, you know, for us, again, life happens. Um, and we have a house, we have cars, we have all of those things. And especially when you have a house, there's always something that happens, whether it's you know, or leaky roof or, you know, your washing machine breaks down or something, to have some of those funds available if you need them. Uh, The the three to six month rule is is kind of what we follow as well. Um, It just, if something catastrophic happens, uh, whatever, you get sick, you can't work or you need to care for your family for whatever reason, just to have that just in case uh, is definitely something I would recommend. And again, I think what I found, what we found is, you know, as soon as, as your paycheck comes in and you can allocate, right, things to go in different places, whether that's your 401k or some of it goes to your checking or some of it goes to your savings. And so if you just don't even see it, you don't know that it's not there, it, it doesn't bother you. And that's definitely something that we've learned um, is, is to allocate those, you know, right off the bat to go to those particular funds.
4: Yeah. So, Jocelyn, I think you just brought up like another very um, important topic for us, like once we uh, graduate, um, that's uh, purchasing a home and, you know, dealing with home related expenses. Can you just like, briefly tell us, like, what is a what's a mortgage?
3: The mortgage is what takes up most of my paycheck. Um, <laughs> it, so we have a loan for our house. I I have been very lucky, as I mentioned to you before, I have a a CPA as a dad. So even before, when I was in pharmacy school, just about to graduate, my dad and my mom actually said, you need a tax shelter and we're going to help you buy a house um, and a condo. And so even then, they were very much like, we're gonna help you, you need a down payment because obviously I was still very, very poor and had to still also repay my loan uh, from school, but you need a, a down payment and then you know, a loan from the bank. And so you're paying your mortgage to the bank until obviously it's, it's paid off and you actually own the home, right? Until then, it, it, the bank owns the home um, and you're paying the bank your mortgage. So there's a lot that goes into buying a house. I don't know how much everybody else wants to talk about that. I would definitely say the the earlier you do it, the better off you're going to be. Real estate just tends to to grow and grow and grow.
4: Yeah, I was just wondering for uh, for reference. So, how is how is a mortgage different than uh, than renting? Just like renting, you know, an apartment.
1: So I so I don't own a home. But I'm I'm currently doing research into to buying a home. So Jocelyn can correct me if I'm incorrect on any of this. But a mortgage, so a mortgage is a loan that's taken out to be able to buy your house. And depending on your area, maybe close to the price that you're renting. But for a rent, when you're when you're living in an apartment or even renting a house, that money is going to whoever owns that house, that that landlord. And so that money is, is essentially just your, your paying to be able to live there. When you have a mortgage, you're the person that owns that loan. You're the person that owns that home. And let's say that your, your mortgage payment is, well, we're in California, so $2,000. Well, that $2,000 isn't going to someone else who owns your home. It's, it's essentially going to you. Now, because it's a loan, there is some of that $2,000 that goes to interest. But then the, the, the remainder of that goes into what's known as the principal. And that principle in in a way, like Jocelyn kind of mentioned, is not only a tax shelter, but is also equity for you. And equity is a fancy word for money. And so in essence, by paying that that mortgage, you now have essentially kind of a, a different type of savings. Because then if you decide to sell that house, that money that that you gain from that house is is able to be used to probably either purchase another house or for For other type of things, so paying a mortgage gives you more buying power, whereas renting in some senses paying somebody else to live.
4: yeah, I was just wondering, so why would you even need to take out you know a, a mortgage like this specific loan? like why not just you know as soon as you graduate, you know buy a house like in cash? like why, why not do that? Let's just let's say like we're referring to like o c e for uh, for reference.
3: I don't know who has that kind of cash, especially in to live in the OC. I sure didn't.
4: Yeah, so just throw some numbers around just for reference. So again, I, th- I think Josh said this earlier, but yeah, when you graduate, you know, as and you're working as a pharmacist say in California, you know, you're probably making somewhere between you know 120 to maybe 180 thousand dollars like per year, which sounds like you know a lot of money. Um, But just for for reference, so these are just prices I looked up recently on on Zillow. So that's just kind of like a real estate site to kind of see how much houses are in certain regions. So I just looked at median home values. So basically just like the middle number for how much um, a house will cost in certain parts of, uh, I just looked at California for reference. So the median home price in Irvine, which is, you know, a a very nice suburb, just a little bit south of kind of Marshall B. University. So the median home value or home price in Irvine is about $900,000. So that means like if you just want to buy like kind of a you know a general kind of run of the mill house in Irvine, that's $900,000. So you know, that's several years, like basically your entire pharmacist salary. If you want to look at Los Angeles, it's about $800,000. San Diego, a little bit over $700,000. San Francisco, $1.4 million, okay? And if you want to look a little bit more inland, Fresno, about $280,000, because that's the median price value. Most people are not going to have that much money just available as soon as they they graduate. So that kind of like highlights like why basically if you want to buy a house somewhere and you don't have, you know, a million dollars available, you have to take out a mortgage. But it's just like kind of how it works. That's how you're going to be able to move into this place you want to move into. Um, like we said before, previously with student loans, again, loans are money you have to pay back. There's interest, there's taxes, there's insurance. And that's, again, that's all going to be added on top of like kind of like the main like the principal that you owe for you know the house that you you purchased so to so just just kind of like again going on this topic is going to is a very important topic for you know us as you know healthcare practitioners so jocelyn since you've since you already have a, a home so what what types of fees do you have to add on to you know like your mortgage like what does that mortgage include
3: yeah so definitely taxes as as you mentioned there's escrow, and when you buy the house, there's closing costs. If you have a realtor, there's costs associated with that as well. So, there's definitely things on top of of just your your kind of how much your house costs. You know, there's uh, insurance for your house. There is if you have um, home HOA do- dues, homeowners association fees, because we also have a, a a townhouse, and so those are also included there that you have to pay for. Some also have mellow if it's a new development and they have to need funds for developing roads and other kinds of things in the community itself. So definitely have to look at all those when you're looking to purchase a home because it, it, it's not just the, what it looks like on top, right? Um, there's all these other added fees that you have to take into consideration as well.
4: Yeah. Um, so just for reference, so um, so we bought our house a few years ago. So again, like some of the numbers are still fresh in our minds. But um, the closing costs, is basically just like money you're paying to all these people to basically give you your, your house that you're going to live in. And the closing costs were about $10,000 for us. And I'd say that's pretty pretty common, like in the part of the country that we're living in, which is, again, is Southern California, pretty close to the coast. So it's it's a lot of money. So, um, again, this just kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier with if you can reduce the amount of money you owe and other things that frees up more money to buy things that are nicer like you know having a nicer home if you have a three thousand dollar student loan payment every month that's going to significantly you know chip away at the money you have to purchase a home again for reference currently our mortgage is about three thousand dollars per month so again like on a pharmacist salary um you know if we had to pay you know three thousand dollars per month I mean, student loans on top of our three thousand dollar per month mortgage I mean we wouldn't have any money for anything else so again again just speaks to like you have to research these things like you got to find you know the, the best plan like for you the best way to kind of invest your money wisely to ensure you can get the things that you want to get hopefully live in places where you want to live because again yeah I, even though you know it may seem like you're making a lot of money like as a pharmacist post-graduation it may not be as much as you think it is okay unfortunately
1: and don't forget to. Uh, oh, sorry. And uh, oh, no, go ahead. Just, the only other thing was to remember on, on top of those fees, since you own the house, repairs and stuff are on you. We right now have the benefit of renting. And so there was a leak in the ceiling. And so I just called someone and then they fixed the leak in the ceiling. But yes, if you own a home, you also have to be able to budget out some repairs, I think, as Jocelyn had mentioned, because they are inevitable as well and can be quite costly, depending on what you're looking at.
4: Yeah, we had a a toilet that uh, that malfunctioned uh, a few weeks back. The guy came in for about maybe 15 minutes, $200. So yeah, these repairs can be like ridiculous. And that's like that's a pretty minor thing. I mean, like we had to get like a roof repair, you know, uh, a few years ago around the time that we moved in, and that was you know several thousand dollars. So again, all these all these things add up. So that's why you have emergency funds. That's why you have savings. That's why you try not to have you know thousand thousand dollars in like student loans if you could you know not do that again, your money, it just disappears like magic. Justin, were there any uh, useful resources that you, I, I know you've kind of mentioned that you have a family member that can help like advise you in terms, of, in terms of finances. Were there any other kind of resources that you use to help you learn about you know, how to purchase a home, how to purchase properties?
3: I didn't do a whole lot of reading. I, I relied a lot on family members. Uh, my husband is the reader, so he reads all the books and listens to all the podcasts. Again, I, I'm the one who you know asks the questions, right? And 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 hopefully somebody else will give me the answer. So I, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of references for you. The bank, uh, I would say, right? We we definitely have a good relationship with our bank, and asking a lot of questions with through that whole process for sure uh, was very helpful.
4: Yeah, and uh, Josh and I were talking about this uh, kind of before we started recording, but um, there there's a book that uh, a friend of mine refer me to. It's called how to buy a house in California. They have, I think they have them for like for many other States like in the U S but that was an extremely useful book. Um, for, for me, especially just cause a lot of these terms I, I was, I had no reference point. Um, I was basically just clueless on what, you know, APR means, what Melrose means, what closing costs mean, what points mean, um, all these terms that are going to be all over your, um, well, basically all over like the discussions that you're having with your, your realtors, with the banks, with these contracts that you're writing. So basically like that, that book really helped to help, just help me kind of clarify like what these things mean and basically kind of how we can navigate the system to make sure we're getting, or our money was going further towards getting like the house that we uh, that we wanted to get at the time. So that was a great one. Again, it's called How to Buy a House in California. Um, I think the, the author is uh, George Devine. Um, again, I have no ties to that, that author, so there's no conflict of interest here. That was just like a useful book that, you know, a friend of my, uh, a friend of ours referred me to. But that's a really good one. I think, uh, Josh, I think you said you might
1: have purchased that one as well. Yeah, as um, and and just for the listeners, uh, as we were talking before we got recording, I I went and purchased the book, which was five dollars and forty six cents on Amazon. So I, I'm looking forward to reading that. Oh yeah, Money Well Spent. Yeah, it's a, it's a very easy to read book. So
0: were there any non-financial topics that you wish you knew about before either starting pharmacy school or before graduating from pharmacy school?
2: Looking back, I think during pharmacy school and throughout residency, I wish I knew better how to prevent burnout. And I wish I knew more about, you know, making time for myself and and taking care of myself I think as a student in pharmacy school, you're just so focused on you know certain things, doing well in school, getting a residency, that you just kind of forget to take care of yourself. So, so just looking back, I wish there was more of an emphasis on that um, in school. I mean, they always told us to take breaks and get away, get out of the city, but it just wasn't really emphasized enough for me, I think. So looking back, I I wish I had made more time for myself. And um, let's see... Also, something that I wish I did more was exercise more. That's just something that I really need to work on as a student and as a pharmacist now. So I, that 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 is something that I wish I spent more time on, you know, with with my classmates.
4: So I just wondering. So, what do you do to avoid burnout? Like, what are your what are your strategies or activities that you you do to prevent that?
2: So currently, right now, um, during COVID, my burnout. Ex- Burnout prevention activities are, are somewhat limited, but prior to go COVID, um, I always made time to travel. So if you have paid leave at work, you know please be sure to use your paid leave. Uh, do not cash out your paid leave. Take that time off to go travel. Um, I think in 2019, I took about five trips, um, just short domestic trips, but I made time to travel with my friends and with my family And also at work, um, please be sure to remember to take your breaks and your lunches. Do not work through them. At the end of the day, try to not do overtime. If it's not urgent, just save it for the next day. Um, Because when I was starting out, I was just really motivated. I just skipped my lunches, didn't use a restroom, you know, stayed late to finish things. But I do not recommend you doing those things because you will just get burned out really easily. Another coping mechanism for me is I I do live really close to Disneyland, so I am a Disneyland annual pass holder. I frequent Disneyland very often. Um, most weekends prior to COVID, I I was at Disneyland, so that, that definitely helps me to relieve some stress.
1: Yeah, and to, to piggyback off of that, Tamara kind of mentioned it already. You I think that balance and being able to know where your limits are is very important because if, you know, I think that especially for students in their P4 year as they're kind of pursuing residency, you're kind of during app year, you're like pushing, 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 getting these interviews in, getting your CV up and, and like, and just trying to graduate. And then residency comes and it's even more intense. You can't say no as a resident or that sometimes that's the culture. And then depending on where you're working in your work setting, that can be the same. And so that's something that I, I personally also wish that I knew a little bit better at how to do, how to create rhythms, not only rhythms of work, but also rhythms of, of rest. So then for, for myself, I, and I've gotten a little bit better at this after finishing residency, but for myself working out, working out in the morning, um, not only is a stress relief, but it also helps me set my day on days when I can't work out in the morning before coming to work. I definitely am less productive, even though I've technically slept more. So yeah, my my advice to to most pharmacy students and new graduates coming back would be to find not only stress relievers, but stress stress relievers within a rhythm.
3: Yeah, I wanted to, I like what Tamara said about, you know, making sure you you take your vacations. Um, I learned that as a faculty member at Loma Linda and our Dean was very, very clear that you take your vacation days every year. Um, because you need it. and and, and so I, I definitely saw that when I was starting to feel burned out, even a day or two um, just to even not do anything, right? But just turn off everything, not check your email um, and just kind of de-stress can really go a long way. And so I think that's definitely something I wish I had learned earlier is, is taking regular vacations, whether that's traveling or not, but just making sure that they are regular so that you can decompress, especially now with COVID obviously, Exercise definitely for me is is, is necessary as well. With COVID, obviously uh, we're limited, but outside, anything outside for me is good. Whether that's hiking, riding bikes around with my kids, going for a jog, um, anything to to keep moving um, and just kind of get your brain off of things. You know, playing soccer with my kids outside in the backyard or whatever it is, just to, you know, kind of again, just de stress and not think about work for a little bit can be very, very helpful.
0: And just from a personal note, I've been pretty silent during this podcast because when it comes to purchasing a house or or loan restructuring, I, I know next to nothing on those things. But something that I tell, Every student, every person that I come across, something that changed my life, like literally after graduating was keeping a calendar and and scheduling things out ahead of time and, and being very judicious with how I spend my time as a way to manage burnout because it, you may or may not have heard of before, the the kind of quadrants of, uh, of necessity for any given task. Is it urgent or not? Is it important or not? And if you kind of take that matrix, the the responsibilities that tend to fall by the wayside and end up, you know, sneaking up on you is those tasks that fall into the not urgent but important category. in just taking time to put into your calendar like oh from and I, I do this with so many things that I do now, like, oh, from like this Friday from ten to noon, I'm going to work on CEs to make sure that my license is renewed. Or like when I was in school, something that I that I eventually ended up doing and it paid dividends for me is from you know, two to five on Mondays. That's when I'm going to study, like, pharmacology or physics or something. And, you know, that's what I'm going to do during that time. I'm not going to have Netflix open. I'm not going to have Facebook open. Like, that's what I'm going to do during that time. And, uh, and setting that time to work on those things that might not necessarily affect me in this moment, but affect me Later on down the road, uh, has really helped me manage all of my responsibilities and has kind of kept my stress level down because I've been able to manage each of those responsibilities.
4: And uh, I think I kind of one other like very useful skill, and again, this kind of ties back to uh, to burnout, having time to do other things that you hopefully enjoy doing a little bit more. But learning to say no, um, this is kind of like a very important skill that I think us as farmers we need to develop, especially when we're invited to do things, we're not required to do them. So it may be useful to have like some kind of criteria for whether or not you say yes or no to that that invitation. And so a set of criteria that I kind of developed, or not not that I developed, but that I read from an open access of kind of like uh, medical education website, I think it was uh, Allium. It's kind of like more like emergency medicine focused. Uh, but basically one of the authors on that page, he said like his three criteria are, or will I enjoy doing it? Will I help people? Will I be paid for it? If it's two of those three, then he says yes. If it's less than two of the three, he says no. So that's like of you know, his criteria. So I've gotten kind of that kind of that similar set of criteria. Again, mine are maybe a little bit different, kind of depending on like the nature of the, the activity. Um, but it's kind of useful to have like some kind of like, kind of more objective criteria for how you can learn to say no to things, especially when they're optional. Again, if you're required to do those things, well, you have, you have no choice, you have to do it anyway. But if it's kind of more like an optional thing, like say with, you know, kind of an extra curricular type of thing or with a professional organization or with some kind of other kind of optional work related experience that you don't have to do. Have a criteria because if you um again if you get if you say yes to everything, you're gonna get burned out really quick. Especially like if you're gonna get involved with like research projects. Those are extremely time consuming, extremely demanding. Um I know oh, kind of all of us have, have have experience with research, um that's that's a very like kind of big task is to kind of take a project from start to finish. So I would highly encourage you have some kind of criteria as to whether or not to say yes or no to those types of things. Um, just because, again, if you say yes to every research project and you're working on research all the time, you're going to hate yourself. It can get really, really difficult really quickly.
0: All right. Well, I think that takes care of all the questions that I have. Kayvon, do you have any more questions?
4: Uh, no. thanks everything
0: I have as well. All right. Well, thank you very much to our panelists, Josh, Jocelyn, and Tamara.
1: And that's a (laughs) wrap. Well, thank you guys for having us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.